pretty smart ladies. Because people have opinions. I did a weird thing, then you did a weird thing. Weird in a way that was not my weird. Well, if you have enough peanuts, it should just bring harmony, right? Everybody, get down. Get down on the ground. Get on your knees, because we need to be small. We're supposed to exercise and eat healthy food and drink water. Leave me alone. I'm not going to bed at the same time every night. Um, Everyone, Michelle used her mom voice. <laughs> I mean, and I, I don't want to compare my kid to dogs. It might be squirrel murderers, but we still like ice cream. <laughs> when will my friend die? When will my friend die? Hmm. This one's a challenge. My, both of my eyes are twitching. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Angreement. Welcome. This is our podcast with me, Catherine. And me, Michelle. And in this podcast, every fortnight, we bring you three things. A weird thing. A pop culture thing. And a research thing. And then we try to tie them all together. We also want to announce really quickly that we are going on a winter break. So this is our last episode until the first week of February. So we will be back. And maybe we can even talk Catherine into editing us a new intro in the... Yes. Yes, I will in the interim. Yes. So come back in February for a new intro song. I'm saying it here now. I'm guaranteeing it. Oh, oh, it is it is a done deal now. Unless she edits this out. Oh, <laughs> I have control of that. No, this is how I make myself do things these days. I have to say I that. totally, like half the classes I offer for uh, my, you know, we homeschool and half the classes I offer for my daughter's co-op. I'm like, I need to teach her this. And if I make a class for it that other people have signed up for, then I, then we have to do it. So that's, <laughs> there we go. It's that easy. Yep. How the many ways you can force yourself into productivity by lying to yourself or Deceiving Putting yourself into positions that will be very stressful. Backing yourself into a corner, right? Yes. Follow our simple tips tips for productivity through anxiety, through more anxiety, lies, and backing yourself into a corner until you can't do anything else. Hooray! And as always, I take notes, which are sometimes right and sometimes wrong, but my notes tell me that you go first this week, Michelle. I will go first then. My weird thing is definitely in your territory. I feel like I'm stepping on your toes, so um, just feel free to take over. Uh, Okay. I mean, last week, the weird thing was my territory, and I knew nothing about it, so. So this week, the weird thing is, I'm going to start by saying, do you know the art the art installation the art. piece. I do know the art. Do you know the art? Are you I familiar with the art, decade? Yep, yep, the art. <laughs> that, that was my weird thing. No, um, the art <laughs> installation piece, I can't help myself by Soon Yuan and Ping Yu. Well, no, I don't think I do. No. Okay. It is a giant robot arm, like the kind that you would find at like a car assembly plant. You've probably seen those in the videos. The ones like, I do know what this is. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I won't spoil it. But now the minute you said that, I know what this is. It's had a resurgent lately. So that my weird thing is the resurgence, not the thing itself. I'm I'm just very interested in like why all of a sudden are we so interested in this? Okay. So for those of you who do not know what this is, it is it's called Can't Help Myself, not I Can't Help Myself. So it is an art piece by 
Sun, Yu, Sun Yuan and Penyu called Can't Help Myself. It is a giant robotic arm like the kind that you would find in like a car factory. And, um, but they have modified it so that at the end it has kind of like this little shovel piece and it- A squeegee almost. A squeegee, yeah, like a giant squeegee. And it has, its whole point is that it has to keep pushing the hydraulic fluid that keeps it operating back towards itself. So it's continuously like ducking down and scraping towards itself over and over again to keep itself alive. But it is also programmed to go through like 31 or 32 different motions, like little dances. So this is from the Guggenheim collection. I will put the link up um, to include in the show notes. And it is an industrial robot with visual recognition sensors so that it is basically told to maintain its Self through continuously bringing this fluid back to it. It was installed in 2016, and they say that it was designed with a series of 32 movements for the machine to perform. There are names for these movements, such as scratch and itch, bow and shake, and ash shake, reflect the artist's intention to animate a machine. Observed from the cage-like acrylic partitions that isolate it in the gallery space, the machine seems to acquire consciousness and metamorpho metamorphose into a life form that has been captured and confined in the space. Um, and so they're talking particularly about how there's like this sense of voyeurism to it because it's kind of like you're watching this trapped animal trying to keep itself alive, but it's also kind of joyful because every once in a while it'll do a dance at you. And it ran for a while there. And then I think it moved to another uh, location for a bit and continued to run. But as it was breaking down over time, it was not able to maintain the fluid and the fluid is, is dyed red. So it looks like blood. And so as, as it's breaking down over time, it was not able to maintain the fluid so it could do fewer and fewer of the dances because uh, it needed to spend more and more of its time just pushing the hydraulic fluid back into itself to keep itself alive. And so um, the, they say the question here is who is more vulnerable, the human who built the machine or the machine who is controlled by a human, that it's a, like a Sisyphean view of contemporary issues surrounding migration and sover so sovereignty uh, that... This is saying that the violence of the blood stain is supposed to represent like border zones. And I guess, cause you're on the other side of the border. And so this idea here is that you're kind of complicit in watching this thing continuously try to keep itself alive where knowing that it's not ultimately going to be able to because it's never able to keep all of the hydraulic fluid. And it did eventually like run out. It stopped operating in 2019 because it was no longer able to maintain the level of fluid that it needed to continue to move. And so I only learned about this. So, I mean, this is something that, you know, it was originally put in in 2016 and then it stopped operating in 2019. So this is not new. But I saw it this week because it had this social media resurgence all of a sudden. On a Facebook page, it was just like interesting stuff, like a public Facebook group. And I think that's where like the, it originated and started getting passed around again. Her name is Victoria Lynn Parrish. And she said, I don't think any piece of art has ever emotionally affected me the way this robot arm piece has affected me. And then she kind of described it. And she said, uh, when I found out that it had finally stopped working in 2019, essentially dying, I couldn't help but imagine the relief it must have felt. And so I've been in here crying over a robot arm and um, no one ever helped him. They just watched. 
And so, like, and then I've seen it shared several times since then. Yeah, people, I saw it on social media and I was like, wait, that's a pretty old artwork. And people are like really getting upset and so, like, they're like relating to it. I feel like, like, I feel like there's a lot of, oh, I am that robot arm or we are all that robot arm, which mm, obviously the yeah. artist intended in some ways. But I think there's something about this moment that is causing a resurgence like there's I mean it does feel like the repetitious movements of doing the same things over and over again while trying to show some little dance of joy and then I can understand and how it might die. be having a moment yeah. right now and I guess my weird thing is just like you know we're not creating a new piece of art to capture that like let's just go back and find one and s- send it viral across the yeah there's not oh, that has so many levels and I don't know where to start that yeah obviously this moment is primed and pumped for a work like that to resonate but I yeah what you said why not make a new work I think sometimes art that is really good takes a while to hit like um Marshall McLuhan who's a Canadian theorist I really like said that art when it's its best is like can be a tuning fork into the he said it can be like a tuning fork for the moment right it just hits and it resonates with everything that's happening and sometimes art just does that a little earlier they're hitting a tuning fork into the future yeah Um, like one doesn't say the future stuff that's me but like this but I'm also fascinated when this happens because then it kind of does sometimes get detached from what the art originally was or what it was meant to be this happened with Marina Abramovic's The Artist is Present, which was an artwork where the performance artist Marina Abramovic sat in the Museum of Modern Art for a month or more, maybe. I forget how long. And she sat across and people waited in line to sit across from her. And most of the time it made people cry. So it became kind of viral for like everyone was crying. But it was all very... um she was very much in control of what was happening. And a lot of the, if there were famous people who wanted to come and sit with her, she was at the time dating in a relationship with the curator at the museum, Klaus Biesenbach. And so, and he was really into like fame and celebrity. And so if there was a famous person like Lady Gaga, they wouldn't wait in line. They would schedule a time and they would come in. And so for the final few days, they really packed her schedule with very famous people or important people to her to kind of have it have a finale. And the very last person or one of the last people that came was her former partner in art and life and love, Ule, who was also a performance artist. And they had not been in contact with each other very much, except she knew he was going to come because she knew she knew who was scheduled for it. They had all gone out to dinner the night before. She knew he was in town. She was hanging out with him. And their relationship, they did so many performance pieces together. And when they decided to break up, they did a really big performance piece where they each started on a different end of the Great Wall of China. And they walked and walked and walked until they met. And they broke up there, which is like the most melodramatic, epic breakup. Are you guys, are you 14? (laughs) Yeah. And that was kind of the last thing. Were you listening to the used on your headphones while you walked? (laughs) (laughs) This is very emo. Um, So 
so for one of the last people that sits in front of her, she kind of, when someone leaves, she'll like close her eyes and look up, recenter herself and look up at the next person. And then Ule came and sat with her. And so they hadn't been seen in public together for a long, long time. And it was a nice moment. It was an important moment. Um, they fought a lot over the rights to their artworks they did together. It was a contentious relationship. And then he sits next across from her and they both start crying and it's really nice, but it is in no way unexpected to either of them. But then a long time after that artwork was done, it got picked up in social media in the same way. And it was made into like a quick little video where it's like, you won't believe what happened. This woman hadn't seen her lover for 20 years and he surprises her. And it was like, like um, on the local news when someone knits a squirrel a cute dress and they made it into that. And people were like, oh my God, that's so amazing. They're reunited. And so that happens in weird ways where artwork gets picked up. At least this is like emotionally resonating the way it's kind of supposed to emotionally resonate. Do you think people also, Michelle, I have the question to ask you, do you think people just are these days or maybe ever better at feeling feelings and having empathy for like a little machine? Yeah, I mean, I like know the that wall, like, the Wally effect. I, I I don't know if I've mentioned this on here before, but like I've apologized to my vacuum robot when I've accidentally kicked it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, it isn't like I think that it has feelings, but I just like machines are just around us in a way that is like they're not always removed in some factory where we don't see them operating. Like they are kind of intimately involved in our lives. And I think that there is sort of a level of just familiarity that can, yeah. and, and we have a tendency to personify everything like we, so, yeah. Yeah. I think about that. Cause when I, I teach this work sometimes alongside, um, there's a 2007 work by an artist named Wafa Bilal. And I think it's called domestic tension. That might be wrong, but basically that artist it was somewhere in Chicago and he sat in a small like plexiglass room in a gallery and he had a whole room set up. He had a bed, he had an eating area, he had a little office desk space and people, there were paintball guns in the room and people could go online and use the museum's website to shoot the paintball guns at him. And the only place where he was protected was if he was sleeping in bed, there was like a screen in front of them. So if he went to sleep, he wouldn't be shot in the night and he could actually sleep, but he refused to go and hide unless he was sleeping. And it did really fascinating things where people just love shooting him. They just shot him and shot him and shot him. Some people tried to, um, some people successfully like hacked at the software to where it would shoot without you even activating it nonstop or where the pink ball guns would shoot faster and harder. And I just like, he would do interviews and the whole time you just hear the paintball gun going. And so it's people's decision to like not shoot him or not. And nobody like, he just got shot all day, all day long with paintballs. And I want like, 
Because how many people have to, I mean, because it doesn't mean that everybody wants to shoot him because how many people decided not to participate, but you don't, you can't, there's no way to capture that in the art, right? You right. only see. Like, you can't hit a button to shoot or block. And then it's blocked if enough people do that. Yeah. It sets different parameters. True. The parameters of that work veer towards violence. Well, but, but I mean, I think that that's true of violence in, I mean, not that this man Ooh, was yeah. in real life, but like, you know, we don't get to see how many people decided not to commit a violent act today. We see the people who decided to commit a violent act today. Yeah. So I just think that piece is interesting in relation to the dehumanization because of the various, right, looking through a screen, whatever, versus seeing that little robot and crying to yourself because it's so human. Or maybe not even maybe because it's not human is why yeah. we can put our feelings on it. But yeah. It makes me think of the artwork. I think you mentioned it on here where you could just turn and turn the crank over and over again. And it was designed to give out exactly the minimum wage at an hour pace. Yeah. So like you could just stand there and turn the crank and make, I think it was like $7 an hour or whatever. It would drop out, you know, pennies or whatever coin denomination it was. Um, and just to show like people would not do it. Right. Like, I'm not right. going to stand here and turn this crank for $7 an hour. Yep. Yay. Art. I know the art. You know the art. <laughs> well, Michelle, my weird thing it's a very different kind of art if you want to hear about it. Are we ready? Ready. Um, have you ever been to Carthage, Missouri? I don't think so. Um, I haven't. I've heard of Carthage, Missouri. We're both, we both grew up in Missouri. We know Missouri. So as you will see from my research, I was looking into things in Missouri, around certain areas of Missouri. And I happened upon, in a moment of just pure weird bliss, the Precious Moments Chapel, which is in Carthage, Missouri. I feel like I know this for some reason. Why do I? I've probably I seen billboards. I bet I've seen billboards. Okay. Because I had never heard of this. I had not even thought about Precious Moments in a long, long time, right? Precious Moments, the big anime-eyed kids, vaguely religious in nature, um, lots of porcelain figurines. So I learned all about <laughs> the precious moments so, chapel which is wild the precious moments chapel in carthage missouri if anyone wants to go was created by samuel butcher who is the artist who created precious moments the whole thing um and interestingly enough he also later in life purchased two islands in the philippines and has made them resorts and training centers and he lives in the philippines now for it could not find that. Okay. Slightly um, villainous, maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It just sounds, I don't know. The Precious Moments Chapel, which he built and used his money to create, is a theme park run by Precious Moments Incorporated because he pieced out to the Philippines. He doesn't do much with it now. And the chapel itself is a structure in the park that was created in 1989. And he did all the paintings in it. And most of the paintings within it depict children or like children as angels cast as big biblical prophets and figures like the whole 
east side is the Old Testament. The whole west side is the New Testament. Um, and they have passages from the Bible, like God said, and let there be light. And there's two precious moment angel babies holding a flashlight. Um, and it is basically God told Samuel Butcher to rent a car and find a spot to make this chapel. And he chose Carthage, Missouri. I think those implications are interesting and weird because um, Independence, Missouri, I think it's Independence near Kansas City is where the Mormons, Mormon religion says the Garden of Eden was. So there's some, there's some God talking to you energy in Missouri. I have a story to add to that when you're, when we're at a, okay. Is this, is this an okay time to add this story? Yes. So um, I worked at a Walmart when I was in college in my college town, which was in, in um, Western Missouri, uh, near Kansas city. And I was a cashier. And one time when I was there, this guy came in, in a clown costume, full clown costume, but it was like a jumpsuit. And the jumpsuit had like, um, flames on like, like felt flames sewn onto it. And then like, um, Bible verses about burning in hell, like about like, uh, they were very like revelation, you know, not the, not the God is here for you Bible verses, but right. like, uh, all sinners will meet their end Bible verses, right? This, he came and he like just walked and was just staring really like off into space for a while. And he would just stop for a while and stare off into space. And then he would walk for a while. And it, it like truly freaked me out. And I'm usually pretty okay with like, oh, people are just strange. I mean, creatures. we heard your spider story on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I handled yeah. that. Yeah, so, you, that was fine. But this, I was like, like, I literally like turned my light off and I was like, if I'm not, if he's coming through the line, I'm not doing, like, I, I don't have a good feeling about this. I don't like this. And you hid your light under a bushel. I did. My light. <laughs> <laughs> light hide it under a bushel. No. Yes. I'm going to let it shine. No. <laughs> <laughs> so he went over to the party decoration stuff. And was just like staring up at the like pinatas and balloons. Um, and somebody like one of the, the the people working over there was eventually like, sir, can I can I help you with something? Because he'd been standing there a very long time. It's like, I'm just waiting for God to tell me which one to get. And, you know, it's kind of just like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you know, like he's busy. So got to wait my turn. And she was like, oh, okay, well, let me know if you need any help. And he was like, God's going to tell me. And I was like, so God sent you in here and you're like, you're all going to burn in hell costume to the balloon aisle. But then like got distracted and didn't tell you, like, <laughs> I got, I'll get back to you in a minute. Like she's just, just listening to heaven's waiting hold music. Right. right. Sounds like the Cisco. I don't, I don't know if he ever figured out which. I want to know what pinatas that God wanted him to get. Yeah. Um, But that was also in Missouri. So I don't, maybe there's some divine. There's some energy. There's some some sort of energy there. I know for a fact that there's, I think it's a Mormon thing. There is a giant, giant sculpture. That's kind of like a spiral that um, when Jesus comes, it was built so that when Jesus comes back to earth, he can walk down it to get to earth. How you were going to say slide. And that would have been so much more fun. (laughs) Maybe, you know, he can, he can do what he wants, but I just like that image of he can get that far 
but then he needs the help the rest of the way down I just said that you know because you're talking about Missouri so I had had the picture of like the potato sack slides like the (laughs) like county fairs yeah yeah yeah. oh they should we should go find that and put a potato sack at the top just to help Jesus have some fun (laughs) yeah if you're coming back down to earth, I mean, things aren't good. So that'll be, that'll you might as well come down with some joy. Highlight, and that- <laughs> <laughs> no, it's put all downhill from mood. here. We need to put him in a good mood before he gets back. Oh my God. <laughs> Have a little slide, Jesus. And then we'll tell, we'll catch you up on all the bullshit. <laughs> so, so yeah, there's something to it. Um, so I will link it to the show notes, but you really have to see the chapel to believe it because it is inspired by the Sistine Chapel in Rome. And it is styled after that. With precious moments characters? With precious moments characters. He spent, Sam Butcher spent four years painting the chapel. He did it. He did it the way the Sistine Chapel was painted. He did it like up on, on scaffolding on his back. People said he ripped the seams out of his clothes so he could move more easily. And it opened to the public. And at the time, Precious Moments was very popular. And so he surrounded the chapel with acres of like theme parks. There was a Precious Moments Museum and a convention center and a performing fountain of angels that had live musical acts, a wedding island where you could get married and have your wedding and um, a mini mall of Precious Moments gift shops of all sorts. And it was all free. All of it was free. Like you could go and get your Precious Moments wedding for free. Paid wow. Precious Moments Incorporated. Because I was going to say, so this was all just a money grant, but it wasn't. Like he said, he's. I mean, you could shop in the gift shop. Right, right. You could buy yeah. Precious Moments characters, but still yeah. like. Sadly, in 2007, pretty much everything except the chapel closed down because Precious Moments money isn't pouring in anymore. You can still, though, go and see the chapel and have a free tour. It's open every day except Easter Sunday and Christmas Eve and Christmas. So that's cool. And um, many people have said, I read a lot of um, reviews of it, and many people said they've had religious experiences there. And it is hyperbole that, Babies never cry there. That's a story about the Precious Moments Chapel. Um, but basically, yeah, it's, it's modeled after the Sistine Chapel. The wall behind the altar is like filled with his, what he Sam said was his masterpiece, which is um, Hallelujah Square. And that depicts a dead child arriving in heaven. And several baby angels are holding up signs reading like, welcome to your heavenly home with like the signs are upside down because kids are cute, even when they're angels. And um, yeah, so the center, the whole center of it is like dead baby angels going to heaven. And like to walk down the pathway, there's a ton of sculptures, bronze sculptures of precious moments, angels. And sadly, that is very sad. And then his, his son died. I was going to ask, does he have like a personal? Yeah. Well, no, he did this before that. And then Aww. after he made it, one of his sons died at the age of 27, which isn't a baby, but it's still very young. I mean, and there's never a good age to no. a child, right? Like no. that's heartbreaking. But that's also, yeah, it's still young. 
And um, he he then made like a whole extra building onto the chapel just for his son, Samuel. And uh, so I'm ending it on a very sad down note as my weird thing, but it's so weird. And to see these images because it is as like grandiose as the Sistine Chapel, but they're all precious moments. I'm just sad I can't um, like renew my vows there ever now. Maybe, maybe there'll be a resurgence. I mean, we saw how art can come back at weird moments. Yes. <laughs> They'll this reopen the all of it. The call to the universe. Right now we care about um, what, yeah, what will that moment in the zeitgeist be when we really need dead baby angels again? That's very medieval, right? Yeah. yeah I feel like there, there's, a, there's a loop for that in history. So right now we're at our like empathetic AI moment and then we'll loop around to dead baby angels. Okay. Cool. We'll get there. We'll get there. It'll be fine. I hope so. Should we do, should we start our pop culture with the grab bag? Yeah, let's kick it off with the grab bag. podcast this is grant um i think this is well, i know this is my second grab bag um and so this is a um i guess this is a pop culture thing um even though it interestingly came out of i guess came out of some research didn't really come out of the research i was doing but it came out of reading reading an academic book called cinema and the cultural cold war by sang jun lee and one of the things that's kind of discussed in this book, I mean, the main argument, the main point this book's doing is talking about, like, at first, how film industries in Asia, specifically, like, Korea, Hong Kong, um, Japan to some extent, but definitely Korea and Hong Kong, came from some, of like, support and funding from the CIA, um, which, I mean, isn't that surprising of a thing. But one of the things that gets in and the CIA kind of failed, and there's a lot of nuances and specificities that if you're interested in, I recommend this book. It's pretty interesting. But um, one of the things that I ended up finding specifically for this, this is kind of like, again, the pop culture thing, is if you are familiar with the film Three Ninjas and also its various sequels, Three Ninjas Kick Back, Three Ninjas Knuckle Up, Three Ninjas High Noon at Mega Mountain, these were all produced um, by someone named Simon S. Sheen, who actually that was sort of a um, sort of a, a pseudonym of someone named Shin Sang Ok, who was basically one of the major people behind the development and popularization of the South Korean film industry. Um, now the book goes into all sorts of details about sort of his film company, Shin Films, and very specific things related to how it developed and how it was important in terms of the general film industry at the time. But what I find interesting here was, so uh, in 1978, 
Shin apparently ended up trying to find, like, left South Korea. He went to Hong Kong trying to find his wife who had disappeared. And while in Hong Kong, he was kidnapped by North Korean agents. And he, uh, like, his wife also had been kidnapped by North Korea. And for the next, like, several decades... He ended up like shooting a bunch of films for North Korea and in like ended up developing and shooting like basically the North Korean film industry and kind of creating that as well. Um, and so pretty much over from like 1978 to 1986, that was pretty much what he did was he ended up developing kind of a director centered film industry in which he wrote, directed, and distributed all the films he made in North Korea. But then um, Shin and his wife escaped North Korea in 1986 and ended up beginning a career in Hollywood. And that's when he kind of changed his name and he ended up being the, the producer of movies like Three Ninjas. And so I just kind of find that to be incredibly strange is that the producer behind Three Ninjas not only was like one of the main people behind the creation of the South Korean film industry, but ended up producing those movies after he was kidnapped by North Korea and escaped and escaped and kind of ended up becoming a producer in Hollywood. So that's a little, I mean, a really little kind of grab bag pop culture thing. Maybe, um, hopefully, hopefully that's something that is interesting and uh, thank you. Really love the podcast. And again, I think last time I said this is incredibly difficult, and it still is. So, um, goodbye. Oh, thank you, Grant. But don't say it's difficult because then we won't get grab bags. Right. No, submitting a grab bag is not difficult at all. That's not what he meant. He didn't. <laughs> We're gonna, yeah. Well, edit, I'll, I'll play no. North Korea dictator and edit that. Have you ever seen the film Three Ninjas? I have not seen Three Ninjas. Oh man! But what, what was the what was the fourth type? Three Ninjas in the <laughs> Mega Mountain of like what? what Mega Mountain Purgathon? I don't know. <laughs> it was Three Ninjas High Noon at Mega Mountain. Oh, so I, yeah, okay, High Noon at Mega Mountain. Yes, I'm just going to start with that one. I'm just, I'm going to skip everything else. And just go, go straight, straight to, that. to that. I'm looking at the cover and there's roller coasters. So well, there would have to be. What else would it be? I, Three Ninjas is from 1992. And I remember it fondly because it was one of the only movies my brother and I would agree on to like get from the movie <laughs> store that we were both happy with. It ticked all the boxes of our young um, preteen world. So I have, I'm very, very fond of it because he liked it for the fighting. I thought there were cute boys in it. Win-win. It was win-win-win. <laughs> I have not seen it, but now I feel like I need, why, I, I just keep thinking about like, just that you kidnap someone and you're like, okay, now you're going to make movies for me. Like I just, that seems like the, it's just that dynamic would just be so yeah I want to know all about that time period like what is that like and like, I don't you have to have some degree of like creative space and like 
safety to be able to create, but obviously, you know, he's trying to escape and finally managed to escape. I just, that I don't, it's just, I'm trying to imagine myself being in a position where like, yeah, create this art, create this thing that you create. Well, cause I mean, obviously lots of people have created art under oppressive conditions, but they're often about the oppressive conditions. Like right, in this case, right. like you can't directly create it in that way. Right. Yeah. Oh man. I, uh, that's fascinating. And I just want to learn all about it. I want to yeah. research it. And his wife, and he found his wife there. And they both got to, they both escaped together and went to Hollywood. We found to make the Three Ninjas franchise. The whole franchise. I, I don't want to make light of anything, but I'm just like, those conditions, those horrible conditions. And I'm like, yeah, why wouldn't you want to make something really stupid and light and just... Like, I'm going to enjoy this. It's kind of like the Jesus slide down for the end of the earth, right? Exactly. Exact. This, uh, that's a pre-connection. The Jesus slide down. That if you're going to do it. It might a, as well be fun. Have fun once you get there. You can only get halfway, but once you're there, have fun the rest of the way. Well, thank you so much, Grant. And I am excited to see how that's going to get connected. I am. Yes. Yes. You you have definitely given us a challenging one that, but also like with a lot of potential, I feel like there's a, oh, there's yeah. a lot of little threads that, yeah. Oh yeah. For those of you inspired by this grab bag moment, remember you can send in your own at angrymentpodcast at gmail.com. You can send it in by a text. You can record it. If you want to come on live, we can make that happen. We want your grab bags. We love them. I love them. Yeah. Because that, yeah, I, I did not know what that was going to be. And that's awesome. I love that movie. The prize part is the best that it's like, neither of us have heard it. And here it is. Yes. Not that I don't like being surprised by you also, Michelle. <laughs> you know, we've got our flavors that we tend to come back to like the grab bags help spice it up a bit. Oh, yeah. You got to get an outsider perspective. We're almost 30 episodes in, man. Right, right. We can't be going to keep saying it so much. I can't edit it you out. You can't edit it all I'll out. You can't get one. New theme, new theme. So, what is your pop culture? My pop culture thing. Social media counts as pop culture, right? It's going of course. To okay. I did a whole meme about Pete Davidson last time, who you texted me and made my day last week you texted he's like it's confirmed he's dating kim kardashian <laughs> and apparently another kardashian sister is potentially pregnant by oh, what's the other manic pixie dream boy that she travis dating? barker yes the yes. drummer of blink 182 yes apparently they are allegedly having a baby so they did just get engaged so there's the there's the era we're in I would say he is also a manic pixie dream boy. He has like the full neck tattoo, which yeah. seems yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah. I would bet that if you don't follow any of this, if they just randomly showed you pictures of any set of Kardashian sisters and any set of those particular men we've been talking about, you would not be able to, you'd be like, these are all the same picture. What are you doing? Yeah. I, exactly. So, so social media does definitely count. Okay. So then my pop culture thing 
is the Atlantic article. I made the world's blandest Facebook profile just to see what happens by Caitlin Tiffany. (laughs) Have you heard about this? No, I'm so excited to learn about this. So the premise of this is that one of the things that came out of the um, documents that got uncovered by the whistleblower at Facebook was that in 2019, researchers at Facebook conducted an experiment to see whether the platform actually would make people get extreme positions based on their um, profile. And so they created some fake profiles. There was the Trump supporting Carol Smith and the Bernie loving Karen Jones. And they gave them each like an overview, like, you know, Karen is liking, you know, left-leaning and eco-friendly and kind of socialist things. And Carol is liking Trump and um, guns and right-wing things. And within a week, Carol was being pushed toward online communities dedicated to QAnon, and Karen was swamped by, quote, lewd anti-Trump material. So suggest, I mean, although I think tip in my hand here, I would rather see some lewd anything material than, hey, go join QAnon. So I feel like they're still not quite on the same par. But um, like, yeah, here's some, here's some dirty jokes versus would you like to join a cult? It doesn't seem the same thing to me. Um, But but anyway, it did show polarization, obviously, right? Um, So this author of this article was interested in what would happen if you created a Facebook profile that was apolitical in like to the extreme, right? Like completely avoided any mention of politics um, and avoided like, you know, any, any of the things that we typically consider sort of our polarizing lines. So she's trying to be as quote, thoroughly nonpartisan, general interest American, the Rolling Stones, Grey's Anatomy, Domino's Pizza, Target, (laughs) Oprah, Wine, which if we have time, I want to kind of, one thing that I would like to say is what would you pick if you were trying to pick a profile? So have that in the back of your mind. Great question. I'm going to think on it. Yeah. Yeah. what, What would be your centrist you know, innocuous. What, what do I like? Is that um, which one, like, I'm like, is Oprah too left? It reminds me, is, is Target too left? Target feels a little leftist Ooh, to me. Yeah, so it reminds yeah. me of, do you remember, I think it was NPR that was like, can you guess if this is a Republican or Democrat refrigerator? Yes. And like, I wasn't particularly good at it, but the times when I was good is when I could identify the brands and be like, oh, that's sold at this kind of store. And those stores are usually in rural areas or those stores are usually in suburbs or those stores are urban. And like, then I could kind of use that as my my place for that. So I don't, I don't know that this list is quite as. I think Target is this person. Even more than Oprah. I think you're right. That Target is tipping it. But. It, I'm um, about what store I would choose because that's hard. Yeah, no, what store is completely neutral? I don't like. We'll come back to that. We'll come back. Lowe's. No, 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 no. Because um, isn't Lowe's and Home Depot? Because Home Depot was Trump supporting and Lowe's wasn't. Yeah. Oh, this is so hard. Yep. <laughs> okay. Right. So um, when I, she says that she liked the target page, but you know how, like when you like a page, a widget pops up and says like, oh, you might also like these pages. So her rules were, she just liked everything that they suggested to her. So every time she liked, so she started with that list, Rolling Stone, Grey's Anatomy, Domino's Pizza, Target, Oprah and Wine. And then whatever would pop up, she would just say yes to it. So she said some of them were, you know, what one might expect, Amazon toys and games, 
But then there were some real weird ones like Sweet and Low or a financial advisor named Max who lives in Nevada or a home health care service in Massachusetts run by an Irish couple. So like <laughs> they were just really random things that were recommended. And so she just liked all of them. And then um, when she liked beer, she was also recommended because she liked wine. So beer popped up. And when she liked beer, then they, there was a page called We Like the United States of America. When I liked Domino's Pizza, I was recommended Arby's Curly Fries, as well as the page for a specific Domino's location in Zimbabwe that had apparently burned down in September. So Oh, it got weird. It got weird pretty fast. Yeah. So she liked all of those things. And then she kept just whenever they would recommend some groups to her, she would do that. And so she would go in and then just like whatever she saw on her feed for a while. And then like the, it was just changing all the algorithms. And so she said after a week, Facebook started suggesting that she send some friend requests. But it was really interesting because all of the because she didn't didn't have any friends. And she had put her location as uh, upstate New York, her real hometown. But all of the people you may know were from Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, which she finds interesting because those are both swing states. So she yeah. has sort of like political, you know, like we can't figure you out. So you must be from Wisconsin or Pennsylvania. <laughs> 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 That's fascinating. Um, but she said that uh, like, she just got really weird things like so here's an example she would join a niche sounding dating group and end up watching a 30 minute video of a british man live streaming from his kitchen in a group called foreigners looking for filipina but clearly not with the goal of finding anyone to date he was just talking about his breakfast and his life and telling commenters please don't call me daddy i actually have two daughters or i would <laughs> notice a vague but ubiquitous hashtag like boom challenge attached to a post about trusting in God or manifesting money and click to see if I could decipher its meaning, which I never could. And so, wow. so basically she says that it just became like unreadable, that it, it was just really either really, really cliche, like over the top saccharine memes or things that she just didn't understand at all that were like, um, a love sorcerer named Dr. Moses was recommended to her. Uh, she got his WhatsApp number sent to her. Um, there was like, um, after two weeks on the platform, consuming only content that Facebook's recommendation system selected for me, I found myself at the bottom of a rabbit hole, not of extremism, but of utter trash. <laughs> <laughs> she called it a senseless and demoralizing experience. Ooh. And I, yeah, so that's, that's my pop culture thing is just kind of that, but I don't know, like, what is completely neutral? Like, can you make yeah. a neutral choice? What store is completely like, I feel like wine is pretty neutral, Coles? especially with all the Hallmark wine movies. Is, is a Coles neutral? Is a Coles politicized? Because hmm, Coles is usually in more like suburban Midwest. Suburban. But I feel like a lot of urban people shop there because there aren't that many good, like affordable run of the mill clothing store. Like it's hard to get all of your clothes in like a, you know, urban boutique way. Yeah. And they do collaborations with like Mary Kate and Ashley Olsen and Vera Wang. They do like very high end upscale collabs sometimes. What about like TJ Maxx? I was thinking TJ Maxx. I was but thinking I think, TJ Maxx. I think Kohl's might be even more neutral. So clothing stores then tend to be a little more neutral. I thought IHOP. 
Yeah. I mean, who doesn't live in IHOP? Yeah. They put pancake batter in their omelets. That's why they're good. Oh. <laughs> so yeah, I, th- I think we, I think we've hit on something with like any, anything that's like a Kohl's or a raw stress for less or a TJ Maxx, I feel could be pretty neutral. Yeah. I think, I think that's fair. Like an IHOP, but probably not a Waffle House. I feel like a Waffle House. No, house. there was actually a, a, um, blogger I follow who posted like a picture of eating with her kids at a Waffle House and got almost canceled for it. And I'm not sure why. Oh, I don't know why, but like people were mad she posted about Waffle House. And she's a very interesting blogger in this case because she has, she is fairly left leaning, but has somehow amassed a very conservative right leaning following. And so her followers are always mad at her, but she's like, this is who I am. Like you, you knew this when you came here. <laughs> I find it very interesting. And I read the comments. So, a it lot. Was, so it was conservatives who wanted to cancel her over eating at a Waffle House. I think so. I, I'm fascinated by this. I don't know what it was. And I don't, I wish I could remember. So yeah, I would definitely choose IHOP over Waffle House. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think most fast food is fairly innocuous, right? Like, I don't think there's a particular politicalization of like McDonald's or Burger King. Yeah. Chipotle. Ah, uh, I think that's that lefty. I think that's that lefty. lefty. Okay. <laughs> I would agree. But like, I would do, I would definitely do IHOP. I would do Kohl's. I think Kohl's is brilliant. I would do, um, grocery stores are hard. Yeah, no, all the grocery stores have a political slant to them. All of anywhere, the, like anywhere you buy food, not a restaurant, I can't think of one because I feel like, whoa, the class politics even, of grocery stores. Even the local ones, like even like local chains have their own, if, even if it isn't like a particularly political leaning, it is definitely like a class marker yeah. of sorts, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. What a good ethnography, though, of Facebook. Yeah, it makes me like, I don't, I often think, because I enjoy Facebook. Like I have a lot of people who are always like, oh God, I have to turn off Facebook or I'm deleting it from my phone or I wish I could stop this. And like, I very rarely go on Facebook and feel bad, but I think I've just curated a pretty good feed of the groups that I'm in and the people, my friends. Um, I am just unceremoniously hide people. Like if, because I, I don't know who's listening to this, but if somebody's posting a lot of stuff where I'm like, yeah, that's bumming me out. I'm like, I don't need to come here to get bummed out. There are plenty of other places that can bum me out. And I, I don't delete them. Like, I don't want to like create an echo chamber where this person is out of my life, but I am very about the snooze for 30 days. Just boop, boop, boop. I am sure there are people who are snoozing me. That's fine. Snooze me all you want. Um, but I just, I don't have the experience with Facebook of, have you gotten anything advertised to you on Facebook? That's really weird. Oh yes. Yes. I do like the feature on Facebook where you can ask, you can click something and say, why am I getting this ad? And that used to be, it used to be very specific and interesting, but lately it has not been, it's just been like, you're this age and you live in this state. Because I've gotten some weird ones. I mean, you know, they want me to do ketamine, basically. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I've never gotten that one. 
And I was like, why did I get this? And they're like, because you're a woman over the age of 30 that lives in Colorado. There's a lot of us. I don't feel like that should be how you target for this. Well, my, my pop culture is very lame, but I feel like this is something that's very much in pop culture right now. So let's just do it. Plus I genuinely want to know the answers to yours because I saw you post about it today. Oh, you know, what's coming. No. What did I post about today? I know if it was today, okay. but um, it's it's Spotify wrapped. Oh, mine is destroyed because I have children. You'll have to check with me in I don't know, 13 years and maybe my Spotify wrapped will make some sense. I was talking about that because I saw you post that your number one song was when your son plays. And then I found, and you live with your son. That's your relationship to him. I mean, one of many. I was shocked to find that like they highlighted one song that um my niece insists on listening to but I don't see her that much especially this year but I mean think about it kids want to listen to the same song over and over again even if you've only seen them five days in the year if they listen to that song 10 times over Mm -hmm. five days that's 50 plays that's a lot yeah yeah and I was at least it's a very good song my niece has incredible taste in music so it's not a song I hate But it was, I just really got a kick out of it because every time I see her, um, it can be months and months and months and months. And she'll be like, play that song. She really loves it. I will just do a shout out for the song Wake Up by Cheese People. Oh, she loves it. It's her favorite. And I, I only learned about that song because her brother, my nephew, was falling asleep before his nap time. And his mother was like, do whatever you can to keep him awake. He cannot fall asleep yet. So I just went on Spotify and searched wake up music. And then she loved that song. So yeah, it's influenced mine. But I think it's interesting that Spotify Wrapped is about like your individual taste and how great you are. And let's repeat it back to you. But there are a lot of people that don't share Spotify with just with, with many people. Right. Like, cause mine, my kids actually do like, my daughter has like a regular Spotify account of her own and my son has a Spotify kids, but Spotify kids doesn't allow all the songs that he likes. So he will then will use my phone when he wants to listen to those songs. And like the, the we have the a Google speaker hooked up in the kitchen, you know, like the voice activated Google home mini or whatever. And that's hooked up to my Spotify account. So anytime they request music on there that, and like, if we're in the car, it might like, so even even though they have their own accounts, like mine is the like sort of master account that gets used for all of the shared spaces. And yeah, I, it is interesting to me. I saw a meme today that was like, Spotify is the only company that's managed to uh, be like, hey, we're tracking you, but let's make it fun. <laughs> like, so yes. I, like, I'm not knocking it. I, I am a little disappointed that mine is so reflective of my kids' taste. I'm like, I want to know what music would I listen to? Although mine said that I listen to more music than 95.5% of the world because I um, listen to white noise on Spotify at night. Like, I have my, <laughs> oh, and, and like, <laughs> you know, so, and then all my top tracks are like rain sounds or <laughs> I sleep a whole lot better when there are rain sounds on and when they turn off. Cause like one time my phone, I thought it was plugged in and it wasn't, and it died in the middle of the night. And I woke up when the rain sound stopped and I don't like, I want to, I want to sleep. So. Exactly. For anyone who doesn't know, Spotify wrapped is the music app, Spotify, which I really do like 
it, it is, it has made me listen and much like my library card where I read more now, except I have to pay for this. I do listen to music a lot more now. Absolutely. I think Spotify is well worth the money. I mean, I wish that there was a better platform for artists to get paid more equitably. And like, I'm not saying that it's a perfect solution, but I definitely enjoy it just as a user. Yes. I really like that they do weekly recommendations. That's how I get all my new music now. Um, But Spotify wrapped is, yeah, at the end of the year, they take all your info that they've collected and aggregated and tell you about your musical self. Yeah. And it's kind of become a joke about, we don't want to hear about it. Stop. Nobody share Spotify rap. Don't know what's going to flood our social media, but I like hearing about it. I do. I enjoy seeing which brings me back to my point of like the people who hate their Facebook and they're like, Oh my God, I don't want to see my friend's lunches or their picture of their, I'm like, then maybe don't make Facebook. Like, why are you being yeah. friends with people? If you don't care about the things that bring them joy or the like, you know, just, yeah, I want to know the number one song of my friends. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you have really good music. I was very happy when we went on vacation in Arkansas with like, you would put music on at night. Always the best. Everything you played. Very happy. I, and I think my music is all over the place. So I, like, I don't ever feel like, like I'm always really, I don't know. Like if it's like if people come and look at your bookshelves, like you feel sort of like, oh gosh, what are they going to see there? I feel like that about like my Spotify list. I'm like, I don't know. Are you, are I don't you feel willing? like I have an identity here. I'm very embarrassed. I mean, okay. So 2019, I think BTS was my top artist, which I did listen to a lot of them. And 2020, it was Amy Mann. Cause I was sad. Yeah. You needed some music to be sad too. I am very surprised that Amy Mann is still, she's number five in my top five, which I was not expecting. Who was top um, this year? I'm kind of embarrassed because, well, in some ways I can be very hoi polloi because my number one was like the Berliner Philharmonic. That was my number one artist because I listened to a lot of like the Rite of Spring again and again and again. So that tells you where my head's bases that I'm listening to that constantly. And my number two was like another um, orchestra. So I did a lot of orchestra music this year. Um, my number three was Kanye West. Was it new Kanye West? No, it was. Okay. I have not, right. I have not heard Donda. So okay. I don't know like where that's coming from. And number four, I think there's been backlash against how popular it was, but my number four is Bo Burnham. Because I listened to, I didn't listen to the soundtrack for Inside. I only listened to one song from that. But you listened to it a lot. But I listened to it so much. It's a song called All Eyes on Me. And that was my number five song of the year. And it's the only one I listened to him enough to make him number four. Did you watch Inside? Or? I have not. Is it good? Do you recommend it? I've, I've heard lots of good things, but I... I have read so many think pieces about like, what are all the problems with it? Why do we hate it? But I, at the end of the day, have to say, I do really, I did like it a lot. And it really, especially watching it last year or whatever year this year it came out. I don't, what, what is the year? It, it like resonated. And I think people are mad that they're like, oh, everyone, are you depressed because of the pandemic? The world's been depressing for a long time. I'm like, yes, I know it has. And I've also been depressed for a long time. But this is another layer. This and is this acute. Is, this is an acute situation that there is no clear into and it is overwhelming and I'm not going to be apologetic about that. Yep. And then number five was Amy Mann. 
So that's not like a cool list by any means. My top genre was soul. And then my top songs were a, a John Cale song. The song Love is Strange from Dirty Dancing. So I don't know. Spotify rap's been in pop culture. I really like Spotify. I'm not going to share that on social media, but I am going to. I'll say it to everyone here. Oh, and what was my aura? They did like your aura of things oh, you listen. Yeah, my aura. I was really, was I was aura? kind of proud of my aura. I was like, okay, I'll take that. Let me see what was it. It was, um, my, my number one was soul too. And for genre, my aura was positive and empowering. This was the color. Oh, you can't see it. It's all white. It's like, a yeah, it just purple. turns. Oh, can you see? Hold it really close. Really close. Oh yeah. Yeah. We kind of match. Look at it all. What, what is yours? Mine was confident, which is a joke for this year. Con- maybe I needed confidence. I mean, so your I music was confident, right? Yeah. Confident and dramatic. Okay. Positive and empowering was mine. And I will ask you one final thing, because I'm, I mean, how interesting is it for people to just to hear us list songs at them? But seriously, I would like to know any, if anyone wants to tell me what your Spotify rap is, I, I am interested. I want to know. But when you went through Spotify Wrapped, did it tell you, like, here is the soundtrack to your life? Was that part of it? And they're like, if your life was a movie, here are this the opening plan- Yes, yes. Okay, because my husband did not get that in his. Oh. In his does he not listen to enough Spotify, maybe? Like, does they, they need an extra layer of data for that? He listened to twice as many minutes as me. And what is that? Oh, sorry. No. <laughs> I was trying to see if mine came back up with the, this would be your. The opening credits theme of my life would be La Festine, which is the theme song from Ratatouille. Oh, which was one of your um things. They're one of your pop culture things for, for my agreement. Really? My opening theme song yeah. would be Three Little Birds by Bob Marley and the Whalers, which I'll take. I'll take that. And then, then there was the song playing as you proclaim your love in the rain. Mine was the Pierre Gint suite number one in the Hall of the Mountain King. <laughs> Mine is Sam Cooke's Bring It On Home to Me, which I am also okay with. <laughs> yeah. Mine is just insane for me to say. We're making some sort of surrealist. Your, your movie is a, um, you know, the, the Clockwork Orange where they're beating the guy to death with, while they're playing Singing in the Rain, you know, like... At, I feel like oh yeah that, yeah that kind of vibe and then the song playing as I defeat the ancient vengeful spirit is as already mentioned wake up by cheese people thanks thanks to my niece mine was mine is my son's song the kick it so these kids they're gonna defeat all the ancient spirits I like that that their music they know because they're gonna they know what to they need a lot of exactly oh I like that those were both the, both the children influenced ones. Very nice. So that's it. Spotify wrapped, finding more. I think that's a good fit though. Our pop culture is both algorithmic yeah. tracking for very yeah. different ends. All right. Well, my research thing is not going to be this that long this time. I promise. Promise. Okay. I'm not this will not okay. be two Darn. hours of me rambling. Um, but it is strange. So did you hear about the German shepherd who is selling Madonna's house? 
No. It took me a second to understand if those words were in correct order or if I was having a stroke because I didn't understand what was just said to me. <laughs> the German shepherd selling. Selling Madonna's house. So the Associated Press ran this story and then it got picked up by NPR and a bunch of local news outlets. CBS ran like a video report about it. Um, and this is Gunther. Gunther the fourth, no, fifth. I don't remember which level of Gunther we're on. Let me, I'll, I'll go to the original article to make sure. There have been many Gunthers. There have been, oh, so that's, that. that is the story here. Oh. So um, this is from the NPR article that was released November 18th, 2021, titled The Wealthy Dog, This Wealthy Dog is Selling a Miami Mansion that Madonna Once Owned. <laughs> this is I thought I wasn't understanding but yeah that's just repeated what you said in a different way okay okay is Gunther the sixth and there's all these pictures of Gunther looking quite regal in this very very lavish mansion and um so this report says that he has put his Tuscan style villa on sale for 31.75 million it was purchased for $7.5 million two decades ago. And then it has all these I'm details. I'm sorry, Gunther, again, again, I know you said there have been many Gunthers, but I feel like Gunther has not lived in that house. No, no, this, this dog is not multiple decades long, um, but he has been, it's been a lineage that has been passed down to him. In fact, the, this article explains that lineage and says that the original Gunther III inherited, so I guess not the original, but this is the one that inherited the money. Gunther III inherited a multi-million dollar trust from the German Countess Carlotta Libenstein in 1992 when she died. And so the group of handlers has been taking care of this dog that has very lavish lifestyle, wears like diamond collars, uh, dines out at restaurants to stay socialized and um, has fine, really fine meals made of meat, fresh vegetables and rice, um, works on obedience skills daily and lives in Madonna's former master bedroom is, <laughs> is as this article has reported it. Um, and the Carla Riccatelli is one of Gunther's main caretakers and is on the board that manages the $500 million estate. So they own multiple pieces of property and also a so men's soccer team and a women's swimming team. And they are, their job is to make sure that this estate stays solvent and continues to grow so that Gunther's lineage may continue to have wealth for as long as Gunther continues to produce a lineage, right? Um, and there's quotes here from, from the caretaker. He's not aggressive at all. He's very good with other animals. They're very protective with their owner, with their people. They like to have a family around. So I usually invite friends with other dogs over, uh, she said during a phone interview, right? So this is, this is all very detailed, lots and lots of stuff. This is a long NPR article. As luxurious as Gunther's life sounds, life sounds, he still has drama and hardships like everyone. Back in Italy, Riccatelli has two other dogs that live with Gunther, his favorite playmates. But she also has six cats and a couple of chickens. Let's just say it's a work in prog progress, Riccatelli said. He's still learning to be with six cats. Okay, so I was like, I read this article. I'm like, okay, this is going to be my research thing because why did this countess leave all this money to this German shepherd? And like, where does this lineage coming from? And all of this, right? 
So none of this is true. <laughs> what? <laughs> NPR. Right. You and told I me to appear on CBS News. I would be like, okay, but come on. But it's these, so, but NPR ran it from like the credit on it is the Associated Press. So it's the AP that like, you know, that, that gets the byline Drop here. The ball. Yeah. And so the, the AP um, has since published a retraction. And it's so much detail. It's so much detail. Um, so they have published in, they published a retraction and in the wake of the article that they originally had up, they now have up this article about how long this scam maybe has been going on. There is no evidence that this German countess ever existed. There is a Gunther corporation that does own this property and is putting it for sale. So that part is true. Um, We don't know if this dog in the pictures is Gunther it is owned by the people who have this, or if they just like went and got a German shepherd and took some pictures, but they sent the press release to the Associated Press and multiple news outlets. And this is not the first time that they did this. <laughs> so the, oh, let me make sure I've got this right. Cause it is, it's, it appears to be a ruse created by Maurizio Mian, who has made his money from a pharmaceutical company in Italy that got bought out by Merck in like the 19 in 1997 it got bought out by Merck and made made them tons of money so he has gotten this that's how he got his money for an osteoporosis medication that his Italian pharmaceutical company or his family's Italian pharmaceutical company made and then it got bought out by Merck and then he became you know very rich off of it so since then he has been working in it looks like running this trust and like doing real estate but in 1999 the Miami Herald reported that Gunther the fourth so two Gunthers before this one was trying to purchase the mansion that had previously or that was at the time owned by Sylvester Stallone so there was a report that a German shepherd named Gunther IV was trying to buy Sylvester Stallone's ma- mansion. And it got press at the time. And then it was revealed that it was a publicity stunt. And Mian told the Herald, if you want to write that it's a joke, you can write that. I won't do anything. But didn't quite say that it was a joke. Just said that he wouldn't, like, Refute go against it. them if they said that it was a joke. And then in 1995, he came forward and said, oh, I just said that to throw the press off so that they wouldn't like, you know, be all over this dog and his estate. There really is a dog. So like he came back or not 1990, like five years later, whatever, the 2008. Reverse, reverse. Yeah. Like, so he reversed. So it, it, it is a absolutely insane story. And I can't. Um, now they are saying that they won't answer any further questions because there is an exclusive contract with a Netflix production about, (laughs) about Gunther's life. So we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure if there is a Gunther. Like you say, this is like not true and they took it down and retracted it. We do know that there is no record that the journalists who are probably pretty angry about being tricked can find that there was a countess who left. Oh, that the one that left yes. it to her dogs. Yes. Or that that countess, a countess by that name, that there's no evidence that she existed. So. It's, I mean, my bones are telling me it's not true. 
Don't you right. think? I mean, but maybe like maybe the dog really is part of the group of people who runs this trust, though. Like maybe it's like a you know. I want to believe that there's a pampered puppy in this somewhere. So you mean when you say helps run the trust, do you mean he sits on the board or no, like? No, 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 no. I mean maybe a there's a dog love. involved with the people who run the trust. Like maybe like they, they do. There are Gunthers and they love them and they yes. treat them. Well. Yeah, I would like to think that. Yes, me too. I'm baffled. I feel like this is somehow linked to that football team mystery. That it's going to be like an Air Bud situation for them. But that was like, I thought that was like Netflix movie publicity too. Maybe Gunther will own that. They're going to hook up. (gasps) Yes. Gunther will buy that football team. That's the connection. Have we followed up on that? Have we ever figured out what that football team is? No. Is there been? There hasn't been anything. We got to investigate. We'll we'll spend our time making new theme songs and investigating these mysteries that we've left. Yep. So there, that's my that's my research. Thing. That's interesting because you were like, I got to research this, and then it did end fairly quickly. Yeah. Into mystery. My research thing is something that's been on my mind um, for a project I'm going to start eventually, and so I wanted to research it. And then, yeah, mine's going to be pretty short because there wasn't a lot of research to be had that I could find. It's the theme. It's the time it of just, Everybody's worn out, including the research itself. It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to stop you here. You need a break. But have you heard of um, the Glore Psychiatric Museum in St. Joseph's, Missouri? No. It is amazing. Um, it has been ranked as one of the 50 most unusual museums in the country. And I do want to give a shout out when we're talking about weird museums, especially weird museums like this one, to the Mudder Museum in Philadelphia, which is amazing. But I think I might like this museum even more. And my mother, ages and ages ago, I think she was taking one of my brothers on like college visits and they happened upon it. And she got me a postcard from it. And it's kind of like haunted me ever since. And so we finally got to go as a family in 2019. So the Glore Psychiatric Museum, it's on the grounds of and in the building of the original State Lunatic Asylum Number 2 in Missouri. And this is in St. Joseph's, Missouri. And that opened in 1874 and had 250 patients. And um, basically... That hospital, the first doctor was George. I'm telling you everything I learned because there wasn't much to learn. That doctor was um, the first doctor at the, you know, back when they called it lunatic asylums. That was the official name in the 1800s. Um, George C. Catlett was the hospital's first superintendent and director, said that the hospital was dedicated to, quote, the noble work of reviving hope in the human heart and dispelling the pretentious clouds that penetrate the intellects of mind disease. And so it was a state-run mental institution, a um, psychiatric institution, a lunatic asylum called at the time, and then for, for about 100 years. And then one of their employees named George Glore in 1966, he helped construct a series of full-size replicas of primitive 17th, 18th, and 19th century treatment devices for mental health awareness week. 
and did an open house with them. And the exhibit was so impressive to hospital officials that they said, well, we need to make this a museum. And so within the year, they made it the Glore Psychiatric Museum. And I'll explain. So, so this was like some pet project of an employee that ended up transforming the entire mission yes. of the place. Yes, the entire this would be like If you got put in charge of like, oh, Greg, bring the donuts for the meeting on Thursday. And then they were like, Greg, these are the best donuts we've ever seen. We're not even making widgets anymore. We're a donut museum from here on yeah. out. It's yeah, we're a donut cafe and you're the head pastry chef now. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is on a large amount of land. And so they did like they did um, the building it's currently in, they set aside to be the museum and moved the patients to another building. Today, the museum's still there. And they, the building that became the bigger um, hospital is now a prison, a federal prison. But they built another one across the street. So if you go, it's mainly all federal prison. And then this small building, historical building, that is the Glore Psychiatric Museum. And they still have at the center of the museum all of those displays that George Glore made in 1966. And this is where the museum, and I wanted to learn more about it, but this is where it becomes super fascinating that those were not constructed by a curator or an art exhibitor, someone who had expertise in the field, right? He made them for like an open house and they definitely look that way. But so they have a kind of hominess to them and he used like mannequins from the 60s that are very cheap mannequins and they look scary. Um, there's a whole wall of dioramas he made with Barbies to show like, here's a witch getting burned at the stake because they thought people with mental illness were witches. Or here are two doctors kicking the demons out of a man. But all these dioramas are done with Barbies and they're hung on the wall. And then around that, they did more and more things. And I'll get into some of those. But but it also then became very art-focused. And so they started, because it was a museum then, a lot of their patients really earlier than art therapy was kind of a trend. Not It's not a trend, but before it came known or in vogue as helpful, they were making a lot of art at this museum. And their patients were creating art all the time. And so that's part of it. But... Um, yeah, it just, I'll, I don't know where to start because it's such a it's wild, fascinating place. But Glor explained, quote, we really can't have a good appreciation of the strides we've made in mental health treatment if we don't look at the atrocities of the past. So what his displays did were like really showed the worst of the worst of the worst things that people had done in the name of mental health. For the rest of his life, he stayed and collected materials for the museum and built things for the museum and was the curator there. Um, and he served as the museum's curator until he died in 2010. So he was the donut maker for the rest of his life. And so some of the atrocities that he's talking about are like the bath of surprise. And these are all real things that were used 
to treat patients in hospitals for mental illness. And it's, they're all, except for the Barbie diorama. And these things I'm listing are full life size with mannequins to show you how them work, they work. So there's the bath of surprise, which is a very um, complicated contraption that was made a piece of machinery so they could drop someone into a bath as quickly as possible to like shock them. There's the giant patient treadmill, which is a human hamster wheel that they would make patients run on until they collapsed. There's the lunatic box, which is just a very small box that you couldn't do anything but stand up in. And patients would have to stand in that for days and days and days. Um, there's Dr. Young's ideal rectal dilators being demonstrated on mannequins. It is fascinating. So it's also fascinating because clearly they're like, okay, it's a museum now. And sir, who has not much expertise in a museum, you be the curator. So the curatorial decisions are very interesting. When you go in, you have a little introduction to the history of the museum and what happened there. And there's like a very interesting interactive thing with um, tongue depressors and glasses. And it asks you like, who is responsible for the treatment of the mentally ill? And you can say the individual, their family and friends, the state, the federal government. And it's very interesting to go in there and see how people have voted every day. And so that's kind of, okay, we're in like a historical museum, right? There's a little interactive educational thing to make us think, we learned a history. And then you go into all the dioramas and the various instruments they used. But then you go upstairs and that's where it gets more like, is this a history museum or is this an art museum? And so upstairs, it starts to do things like, what is it like to be mentally ill? Let's help you experience that in ways that are trying to be helpful, but often are just don't hit the mark and are odd. There's a whole where the morgue was, they have a full display with like a very realistic dummy on the morgue table that you go into. But across from that is they had um, a lot of people that stayed at the hospital were interested in cars and muscle cars and did amazing airbrushing on muscle cars that are like some of the coolest things you will see. And so like you walk out of the morgue and in the hallway are just like muscle cars parked there with like Jesus on the hood, right? Um, done in airbrushing. And then there is the whole section where they display artwork that the patients made. And it is amazing. It's, it's really good art. And like, what you call that kind of art is very debated in art history. For a long time, anything not made by a trained artist was called like outsider art. Um, and now there's been a resurgence in studying that, especially with like prisoners, speaking of the prison nearby, who make art. And it's, it's like, don't call it outsider art. That's a problem. There's a curator named Lynn Cook who, who said you should call it outlier art. But I think that's still... It's a different word, but it's still like polarizing. Um, all this to say, outsider art, outlier art shouldn't have a different name, but the context in which it is made is different. And I think that's a good demarcator of what this kind of art is. If, if you're making it in a prison or in a hospital and your materials are very limited, right? And how you create is very limited and you don't get to choose. Yeah. Like, what supplies you have that day or what you're working with. And so that dictates a kind of style. 
So some of the art, there's a lot of um, popsicle art, but like really amazing sculptures. But then that's amongst things like all the bathrooms have themes. So there's the haunted bathroom, which is all ghosts. There's the phobia bathroom, which has a giant picture of a clown on it on the inside. So as you're going to the bathroom, you're staring at a photo of a clown against the whole wall. Um, And so it also shares space with the, with many other museums. It's one building. And so it's the Glor Psychiatric Museum. And then it is also the Black Archives Museum, the St. Joseph Museum, the American Indian Museum, and history galleries and a doll museum. So are these like separate entries that you have to, so they're not like, you can't just go through and walk through all of them. Oh, you can, you okay. can, you pay one price and you can go into all of them. And they don't clearly demarcate when you have left the psychiatric museum and are then in the doll museum. And because the curatorial choices have been so weird, I was in the doll museum for a good 20 minutes being like, Okay, are these dolls the patients own? Like, I don't understand what's happening here. It's very just destabilizing. And I don't want to be problematic like with mental health, but I and I and the space is doing it in good, I think very good faith. They are really doing this in the name of bringing attention to like mental illness and like don't go back to these atrocities. But it is really a bonkers, bonkers place. And I just couldn't find very much at all about it. I couldn't, I, I knew Glor worked there and I looked for a while, couldn't find too much more about him other than he worked there, became the head donut maker for the rest of his life. And so there's not a lot of research. What I did learn is that you can go and do research there. So I will end this because I could talk about this museum all day. Oh, I will say in terms of where the art and the aestheticization overlaps with like the history. They have some things that I thought were like, is this art patients made? Because they displayed it in a really like artsy way. But then it was just, no, here's information about patients we had. So the best example of that is there's a piece of fabric and it's it's laid out, the objects on it are laid out in a very set, pleasing pattern that looks like someone took buttons and nails and made this circle image. I'm like, okay, a patient made this out of, it's like a collage of found materials, but it's not, it's a patient who over the course of their stay there swallowed over 1500 items. And then they removed them all after they died. So they died and then they found them in it and removed them all. So these and they displayed like them. Retrieved by surgeries to save them. Like this was inside of them at when they died. When they died, like fifteen hundred items. But if you look at it, it's displayed. It's all in a circle, and it's very aestheticized. And they're like, "Yeah, this patient had fifteen hundred items inside of them. Here you go." There's other ones like, like um, a display of a crate that has like thousands and thousands of cigarette packages. And that's because a patient thought that if he collected, I think, 1,800 cigarette packages, he would get a free wheelchair. But that was a delusion because there wasn't any sort of contest. But he collected 2,000 cigarette packs. And 
So the museum went ahead and got him a new wheelchair and said, here you go. There's another one with a TV. They noticed a TV in the main room wasn't working and the electrician came and opened it up and it was filled with like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of notes that a patient had written and put in there because they thought um, they could communicate with God that way, that if they put their thoughts in there, they could talk to God. But then those notes are so fascinating about how all of their knowledge were stored was stored on different um, boxcars. And they put the very specific numbers, like these are the trains that have my knowledge. And I know that this is all, and this becomes the problem, that these things are very engaging and they make the stories highly aesthetic to where they're kind of just fascinating. And then you kind of start to forget that they're very sad stories in the 60s, like mental health care, if you were right. in a state, you're, that's not a good place for you, most likely. Um, but these are just very, very tragic stories. The woman died because she swallowed all these things. And that person um, desperately needed a new wheelchair. And it took that amount of effort for them to just buy a wheelchair because right. there wasn't enough funding for anything. So I'm very, it's hard to talk about it because it's so weird. And you want to be like, oh, weird, but it is very educational. But then they're doing things with it that I don't know. But I, I will say that I am desperate now to go to, to figure out a project to say, I need to go do research there and get into those I pencils. I want to, I'll have <laughs> my pencil. You can follow me. But like, it's a catch 22 because you have to tell them what in the archives you want to look at, but there's no record of that. So I don't know. They do have um, online, I'll put in the show notes, a really interesting collection of patient art. Everything from portraits of Gerald Ford to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and things in between. That is fascinating. And I had no idea that was here in Missouri. So, you know, you could make a weekend of it and go to the Precious Moments Chapel and then the Glore Psychiatric Museum. Wonder what the proper order for that experience would be. Oof. Oof. That's a good question. I could not tell you that. I could not tell you that. Okay. All right. Should we recap? So for our weird things, we had the art installation Can't Help Myself and its recent resurgence in popularity. And I had the... Carthage, Missouri, Precious Moments Chapel. We had a wonderful grab bag for our pop culture entry on, I can't remember the name, but the person who made Three Ninjas after having been kidnapped by North Korea and reunited with his wife, after having kind of founded South Korean cinema. So a, a very storied life. We also learned what the fourth Three Ninjas is called. Oh, and then we also had the... Experiment on what would happen is, is an Atlantic article about if you picked the blandest, most middle of the road things on Facebook and what that would do to your curated feed. And then mine was the Spotify wrapped. Who's, who's, who's listening to your music and what does it say about you? My research thing was the German shepherd Gunther who is selling Madonna's house, but probably not for real. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That one was a that was a roller coaster. Speaking of roller coasters, that was that was a high noon mega mountain trip. Um, 
And my research thing was the St. Joseph's Glore Psychiatric Museum. Okay. I have a thought. Okay. I have Which one. is, okay. Do you want to go first or should no, I? Go ahead. I bet yours is going to be better. So I'm going to go first and then we can end with the winning one. Um, my question is, there seems to be a theme about kind of like, not who's in control, but maybe who has agency or who's, okay. do you know what I mean? Like who in this situation has the agency or who's being perceived and how? Okay. I think that connects to, my thought is just about like curation is a major theme here, right? Like how, how do you get to decide what you see? That's much better. That fits all. Okay. Obviously that fits the weird things because that's, that's interesting, right? That that's an, that was an art piece that was, in a place in time and now it's out of place in time, but resonating more than ever. So I wonder if that is going to become a thing that you have to take into account when you're like creating a show or doing art for curation. Somebody five years from now might turn this into a, or like you said with the, um, that when you, we were talking about my pop culture thing, but you were giving that other example of the one that got taken out and like made into like a clickbaity look at this right. woman reunite with her lover and like it wasn't totally was, out of context. Yeah. Like when I went to teach that that year that it came out, people were like that's an art piece. I'm like, yeah, why do you think she was sitting there in a museum? I bet that would be the kind of thing that would show up on the Facebook feed of the the person who has only picked the innocuous middle yes. of the road things, right? Yes. It's both high and low because it is a clickbaity thing about like just love. And then it's also Marina Abramovich. So, and yeah, that works obviously with the Precious Moments Museum very much. And then with Grant's pop culture, well, yeah, because it's that the choice of, I, it does fit. I'm not putting it into words correctly. Well, I mean, I think that. Oh, I'm, is it a curation of who North Korea kidnaps? I mean, it's like, I think that it's a, well, I mean, North Korea obviously curates which content its citizens right. are allowed to have access to. Right. And um, I like the idea, I don't, like, I think curation has a positive connotation to it but it isn't always right. Like, like, no, it's, it's like, um, what's the quote about the archive? Oh, I'm being a bad academic. Um, I forget who says it. I want to say maybe a gumbin. I don't think that's it, but says like archives are always violent because something has, if you're going to collect knowledge, something's left out and what you leave out is, is a violence. So with curation, you're including things and you're leaving things out. Yeah. And then we have, I mean, yeah, my pop culture with Spotify rap, which is, and your pop culture with Facebook, that's entirely curating. Absolutely. And, and I mean like the Spotify rap, they're curating what they show to you at the end, but they also, you got to those things because it was curated for you. Oh, it's such an aurorbos of things because it's like, they're like, here's your weekly recommended. And then that's what I listen to. And they're like, look at your good musical taste. Didn't you do a good job? Clap, clap, Good for you. Neon colors. (laughs) (laughs) And then um, Glor Psychiatric Museum. Yeah, obviously that's like one of the most interesting parts of that is the curation. And then the, the dog story, you know, like you trust these news agencies to curate 
truth, basically. And I, I mean, maybe I'm reading into it, but like the AP retraction felt like it was like, you asshole, how dare you send us this? Like, how dare you make us look like idiots? Like, don't, don't, you know, like they thought they interviewed, like they called the person. I mean, they obviously they should have done a lot because I mean, they should have just done some Googling because this had already happened before. But I feel That's like- the kicker. That's the kicker. I have to say AP. <laughs> yeah. Probably should have followed up on this. And they did. They said this never should have been published. It did not meet our journalistic standards. But, I, you know, like. I have just- the other question of, and this does lead to curation as well, which is why were people, you said everyone picked it up. It was very popular. Why were people so desperate to report on that? And a lot of people were like, isn't this ridiculous, this world we live in? So I think it's that class consciousness thing. Like here's this dog that's being treated like royalty while there's people dying and not able, you know, like, I think it was an anger. Like it felt like the way that the one percenter anger had a clear Mass yeah, kind of and thing. instead of like electing Elizabeth Warren as president and taxing the rich, we can just be mad at a dog that may or may not exist. Cool. Yeah, that, that seems like right. an easier solution. Uh, not to tip my Facebook. <laughs> what about it? Yeah, it can't just say curation. Um, <gasps> no, <laughs> that was stupid. My thought was stupid. I'm like, well, this is our. Last episode of the year. It is. And like maybe the curation is all of our fortune cookies. And now there's no fortune cookie this week. It's just artfully arranged all the fortune cookies we've done in the past. In a circle like objects found inside of your body. Yes, much like much like the nails and screws and buttons. Arranged. Yeah. So it's just like, all of our all of our former fortune cookies laid out in an aesthetically pleasing way that we have curated I, for you to look back on. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. But if you have something to say about curation, I feel like there is a message about curation here. There is that, a message, but I mean, <laughs> that's also a message. I mean, yeah, we can do that, too. And maybe we add this final fortune cookie to it. I mean, curation is something I feel like you've also been, like you've researched about that a lot, right? When you were doing the minimalist stuff. Because curation, I think, is becoming increasingly important because we are in a world where the major methods of curation have broken down, right? There aren't the gatekeepers to so much media And the means to production have gotten so much more accessible so that there's just, I mean, we're never, ever, ever going to be able to listen to not even a sliver of all the music that is released this month, right? Or you're never, ever, ever going to be able to read all the books in your favorite genre, even let alone like all the books in the world. Like you, even if you pick a thing that you're like, I'm going to do this thing with every waking moment that I have, the best you're ever going to get is a tiny little sliver of what is out there within the realm of that thing. Cause there's just so much. So curation is how most people get any access to like, I mean, it just determines like 
what book is going to hit or what meme is going to be sent around or what, like it just is creation does not. I'm trying to like curation greater than sign creation. But I mean, does that suggest that I, I think that curation, cause like, Oh, not the, that it's better. Yeah. It's not better more than powerful, more, more powerful, powerful than. Yeah. I, from like various people and blogs, I follow social media, read like three books in a row that I absolutely hated. And it just, I feel betrayed because the curate, the curation, I, the people I've surrounded myself with the influencers of taste and literature just fell asleep at the wheel. Not living up to their job. And like, you know, that there are books out there that you would love and you have lost the time that you could have spent reading them. Cause like, yeah, you're, you're not ever going to be able to read all the books out there that you want to. And so you gave up the spots to read this stuff. You hated. I was mad about it. Well, and I saw, I did. I think I might have used it as a pop culture thing on here once. I don't remember for sure, but there was like a, like on Amazon. Yeah. Amazon had like Donald Glover has picked all this stuff for you. And I was like, that's okay. I'll go along on this ride. Sure. Why not? Because like, I hate trying to find something to watch because I'm normally not watching it like for that. Like, I don't mind when I'm like, oh, I have read about this thing or heard about this thing. I'm going to go find it. But if I'm just browsing for like, I just want to watch something. I don't want to have to spend time thinking about it or like sifting through. I just want to be able to say like, give me something I will like. And I know you have enough information on me to know that. So just do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember how good the Netflix, um, the predict, like the Netflix predicting thing was before Netflix was to creating original content when it was just like a streaming service and DVD rental service, they were so good at knowing what you would like. Oh, like they never missed. It was always, it was always right. And but, now I'm lost. I'm lost yeah. in that. Well, because their own commercial interests yeah. have trumped trying to figure out they're no longer, they know they've got us, right? They're no longer trying to convince yeah. us that they can curate well for us. They're just trying to get their own content out there. So what is our message on curation I like the curation greater than sign creation. creation as long as we know the greater sign does not mean better than it just means like more powerful, more powerful. than like it like there are lots of creators out there making a lot of stuff for us but mostly will never be seen it's yeah. just how it gets seen yeah creation curation curation creation and then also all the rest of the fortune cookies artfully Ooh, maybe we spell out creation or cur- curation is greater than creation with the fortune cookies like we yes that's the aesthetic design yes yeah. yes that's the artful design yeah. done yeah. Um, <laughs> there you go I really thought we weren't gonna have enough to make this long enough oh oh how funny I was like I was gonna be like Michelle what are your uh any new year's resolutions <laughs> nope we don't need any of that Nope, we got it. We will see you in February where maybe some of our New Year's resolutions will still be in effect. We can talk about them in February. Why not? It's only a month in. We should have kept at least half of them for that long, right? Yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Okay. (laughs) Happy New Year, everyone. Until then. Happy New Year. See you in February. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.